0: It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Oh, you, you'll have to forgive me. I've just had a kind of a flash of PTSD, something that took me back to the darkest days of the early pandemic. I saw this news story and it said Costco is having trouble fulfilling toilet paper orders. Do you remember how bad that was? It was unbelievable. You couldn't get toilet paper anywhere. I remember the, the word in my neighborhood was, you know, the shipment was coming in to the local CVS. It was like Mondays at 7 at night. And you would go there, and I, I went there once, and there were police officers stationed outside as the truck was unloading. And then you'd go in, and the limit was like one six-pack per customer. And there was a police officer inside to make sure you didn't exceed your allotment. And I remember, you know, it wasn't just that you couldn't get toilet paper in the stores for reasons. that still, you know, because everybody was home and, you know, instead of doing their thing at the offices, they needed more of the stuff uh, for their bathroom business at home. And, you know, you go on Amazon and it would say, sure, expected delivery. it would be like three months from now. I remember ordering, you know, from these sort of weird off-site brands. You know, you'd get this thing from China. It would be these like shrunken, shriveled toilet paper rolls. And I was so glad when that was over. But if Costco, I mean, actually, the story says is Costco is telling its members, I'm not a member, uh, that if they buy this online, they may face delays in receiving the orders. But this could be the beginning. Look, actually, I'm a lot more concerned looking at the daily numbers that more than 2,000 Americans each day, on average, are dying from COVID-19, uh, the Delta variant. But um, Thought a little toilet humor might be a way to kick off the podcast. Hey, I hope you have a good weekend coming up. We'll be doing Media Buzz Live, as always, uh, Sunday morning, 11 Eastern, uh, getting it together for that show. Uh, just saw an item that Chuck Grassley, oldest member of the Senate, 88 years old, is running for re-election. I guess he really likes the job. I mean, he's been there so long, he makes Joe Biden look like a short-timer. Uh, and the, the, his campaign, I guess, put out this video and it shows Grassley jogging in the dark at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I know it's 4 o'clock in the morning, supposedly, because the clock flashes. It says 4 o'clock. Uh, I do this six days a week, says Grassley. You think he's trying to uh, convey a certain message uh, as he runs or prepares to run for re-election to the Senate uh, at this advanced stage? I don't know. You know, one of my pet peeves before we get down to is here is that stories come suddenly everybody's buzzing about them they flash across our screens they dominate the news they trend on Twitter everybody has to have an opinion Uh, there's all this outrage and debate and then before you know it they're gone and we're all on to something else so one example and I knew this would happen and I talked about this at the time would be Afghanistan you know it, it was you know understandably the biggest story on the planet the disastrous exit. Whether you agree with the poll or not, and look, the polls showed that three quarters of Americans wanted out of Afghanistan. Donald Trump wanted out of Afghanistan. Joe Biden wanted out of Afghanistan. But the way in which the withdrawal was made, and you know, the uh, I, I still don't know whether all the Americans who want to get out have gotten out. I certainly know that tens of thousands of our Afghan allies who work with our military uh, are trapped there. And then, remember all this talk about the Taliban and human rights and whether the Taliban different these times? Well, so here's a story in the Washington Post. And by the way, there, there, there are a few new organizations that still have reporters in Kabul and to their credit are not letting the story drop. But how much of this do you see on TV? Uh, girls in Afghanistan have learned, and it started out with an example of some family, that uh, from grade 7 to 12, they can't go back to school. The boys are going back to secondary school. The girls can't go back. I don't know if this is all girls, many girls. And this story talks about the impact on their mothers who are trying to pursue careers, and now the girls are home. It is absolute outrage, as are the Taliban are reinstating. I mean, all the stuff, the brutal tactics, um, all the really tough, brutal, physical punishments that they mete out, it's all coming back. This notion that this was a kinder, gentler Taliban was a fiction, pushed by the Taliban's own PR people. Uh, And yet, you know, with few Americans still there, with no American troops there, uh, the media move on. Um, And I think that we need more reporters telling us what's going on there, Um, not just because of the trillions of dollars that we spent, not to mention the American lives that were lost in our 20-year military misadventure in Afghanistan, but just, you know, because these are important stories to be told. And, and in that same vein, and I talked about this at the time, the, the gripping, heartbreaking, just sickening testimony of the four brave Olympic gymnasts, uh, Simone Biles, Ali Raisman, who went before Congress and testified about the sexual abuse that they suffered. What a hard thing to talk about in public. And and faulting the FBI for not doing anything for a year while Larry Nassar, who's now thankfully behind bars, you know, continued to abuse more and more and more women. And, you know, it was, it was a two-day story. I happened to see uh, Ali Raisman uh, on TV this morning because she's promoting, uh, I think it's on Lifetime, a documentary that she's involved in, and good for her. Um, but... but for, it's not just that we need to get upset all the time. You can't be upset about every outrage and examples of misconduct in the world. But you can demand accountability. And this is where I think the press now has just simply moved on. Oh, this was terrible. It happened to these gymnasts. Oh, this is awful. Um, what's the latest on Gabby Petito? You know, because that's now the missing white woman syndrome Story of the week or the month, uh, and the questions about the FBI and the agents who were so cold toward these women and didn't investigate and didn't write a report and in some cases lied to the bureau, where are the demands well, because Trump is involved, isn't involved? Where are the demands for more answers from the bureau? I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing a lot of Trump, and now I will yield the floor to the news about the former president because it almost seems like he's kind of dominating the news this week, especially if you watch certain channels whose initials might begin with MS. I mean, every hour, especially in the later hours of the day, it's Trump, 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 Trump. Now, there is some legitimate Trump news. So let's start. Story number one, um, Arizona. So this is just in from the Buzzmeter breaking news desk. The results are in from the Arizona audit. And let me have the envelope. Joe Biden wins Arizona. Okay, well, Joe Biden won Arizona by about 10,000 votes back in November of 2020. Uh, That was checked on, um, and there was never anything to contradict it. But then, Republicans in the Arizona state Senate, and by the way, this is based on a draft report that leaked out last night. I'm looking here at a New York Times story about it. Uh, The actual report uh, we'll see later today as I'm speaking to you. But um the, the Maricopa County was the focus of, you know, where Biden racked up a lot of a pretty big margin against Trump that helped him win the state. So Republicans in the state Senate said, uh, you know, we don't trust this. So we want an audit. This was not authorized by the county. It was commissioned, it was, you know, completely partisan operation where they hired a firm to do the audit that had never done any election fraud work or election investigations at all. And they were called the Cyber Ninjas, which always makes me think of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If you're a parent, you have to watch shows like this when your kids were growing up. So the Cyber Ninjas have a draft report. And it found, in fact, they did find uh, that the numbers changed. Listen to this. 99 more votes for Joe Biden... 261 fewer votes for Donald Trump in Maricopa County, which is the county that includes Phoenix. Uh, So uh, the county kind of put this out to kind of get the jump on it. The county's canvas of the 2020 general election was accurate and the candidates certified as the winners did in fact win. Then it criticized this review, this partisan audit, as littered with errors and faulty conclusions. Now, this cost $6 million that was paid for by very conservative groups and Trump defenders. So obviously they had a vested interest in finding that Biden didn't win by the same margin in Maricopa County to the extent that if, if, if it was a swing of 10,000 votes, obviously they could at least make the argument. And I don't know what was going to happen. They were just going to, even if, if, if it had gone the other way, That doesn't kick Joe Biden out of the White House. There's no mechanism for doing this. And also, he would still have won the Electoral College. But now you have other states. Oh, by the way, you know what other state, uh, under pressure from Donald Trump to the state's Republican governor, is going to conduct an audit of certain counties? Texas, which makes no sense because Donald Trump won Texas. He won Texas by 6%. I mean, he won it easily. Why would you do this in a state that you won? I don't get it. I don't even see what the political point being made is. But here's Trump last night. Everybody will be watching Arizona tomorrow to see what the highly respected auditors in Arizona State Senate found regarding the so-called election. Did he know at that time that it didn't go his way? All right, so the alleged discrepancies found by the ninjas in their ninja-like way, um, that the claim that some ballots were cast by people who had moved before the election, that election-related computer files were missing, and that some computer images of ballots were missing. Now, I don't say that this is impossible. No elections are perfect. But does this rise to the level of widespread fraud, even if this were true? And I don't know. We haven't seen the final report. Uh, uh, The story in the Times says Republicans in the state Senate began pushing for this inquiry back in December after a day-long meeting with Rudy Giuliani. Republican president of the state Senate, Karen Fan. She insisted this was a nonpartisan effort. All right. Related story. Uh, reading this one from the Washington Post. The House January 6th Committee, which is obviously, you know, uh, dominated by Democrats, um, commissioned by Nancy Pelosi, who did put Liz Cheney on as the vice chairman after she rejected some of Kevin McCarthy's own nominees. Well, it's issued its first subpoenas. And four people have been subpoenaed, and they are former White House Chiefs of Staff Mark Meadows former deputy chief of staff and social media guru Dan Scavino. Steve Bannon, the longtime campaign advisor to Donald Trump and for eight months uh, a top White House official. And a guy named Kash Patel, who was chief of staff to the acting defense secretary right before the January 6th riot at the Capitol, uh, Trump's temporary replacement after he got rid of Mark Esper. Okay, so... Uh, Trump and his team are obviously been highly critical of this January 6th committee. Remember, there was supposed to be an independent commission, but the Republicans wouldn't play ball on that. And of course they're going to issue subpoenas. And of course there's going to be a court fight about this. I'm sure that Trump will make certain of that. Um, but who do you go to? You go to the people in and around Trump world who were talking to the president at the time about... What became the riot at the Capitol? Uh, I don't know who they thought. You know, it's really interesting in Mark Meadows' case because not only is he the White House Chief of Staff, and you get into these questions about executive privilege, but he's a former congressman. But obviously, the Democrats uh, who control that committee are not going to worry about the fact that, you know, Meadows served time on Capitol Hill. Okay, here's Trump. Hopefully, the unselect committee. <laughs> will be calling witnesses on the rigged presidential election of 2020, which is the primary reason that hundreds of thousands of people went to Washington, D.C. in the first place. So Trump uh, said he would fight by invoking executive privilege. And look, yes, many, many, many people came to Washington at his urging because they wanted to contest and pressure Congress not to accept the legitimate findings of the Electoral College. And that turned into... A riot. It turned into violence. It turned into police officers being assaulted. It turned into 600 people being arrested. No other way to put it. Uh, now, will there be an absolute attempt to paint this January 6th House committee as overly partisan? Yes. Could the committee play into the critics' hands? It's possible. But all we have now are the initial subpoenas, which are for records and ultimately for depositions. All right, story number two uh, coming back to COVID. Uh, The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, this is late last night, overruled her agency's advisory panel about these booster shots. She has the power to do that. It's rare, but not unprecedented. And basically, Walensky, and I think that her, the way she's communicated throughout this pandemic has not exactly been the best. But I think this is a good move because she's making these booster shots available to more people with the decision that she made. However, this only applies to the Pfizer shots because the CDC says it hasn't gotten the data yet for Moderna and J&J. Also, there's been so many conflicting news reports about who's in and who's out and who can get the shot and who can't get the shot that I think a lot of people are just kind of confused. I mean, I had to go back over this and read it very carefully. So the advisory panel of experts kind of echoed the FDA, saying you could get the Pfizer booster If you're 65 and older, if you're a nursing home resident and people 50 to 64 who have underlying medical conditions, all if it's six months after you got your second shot. Uh, And the panel said that young people, younger people, I should say, 18 to 49 with underlying medical conditions could assess their own risk and get a booster if they want it. That makes sense to me. So the CDC committee, not Walensky, uh, wouldn't go along with the FDA on this question of people at a higher risk for illness. And I'm thinking, what? Why not? Um, It said if you're 18 to 64 and you're at risk of exposure and transmission because of the job that you have or where you work, um, you should be able to get a booster shot. Walensky said, explaining her action, in a pandemic, even with uncertainty, we must take actions that we anticipate will do the greatest good. So what was the panel thinking? All right, one pediatrician on the panel, Pablo Sanchez, voted against the uh, occupational exception, I guess you would call it, by saying, well, if we do that, we might as well just say, give it to anyone 18 and over. We have a really effective vaccine, and it's like saying it's not working, and it is working. Some administration officials says the post are frustrated about the committee decision. Look. Biden wanted to give it to everybody over 18. So all this is a setback for him. It's a setback in terms of it's taking more time, uh, all of these categories. I just don't get it. You know, what harm would be done? Does it send the wrong message? Is that what this is about? If you care about, it it doesn't, in my view, send the message that the vaccine is so ineffective that you got to get another shot six or eight months later. It sends the message that, you can boost your immunity by getting additional antibodies by getting another booster. Look, we get booster shots every year for the flu. Why would this be any different? We may well have to get these shots for years. I don't think that's such a terrible thing. So I kind of like what Rochelle Walensky did here. I still think it's confusing. And then now the question is, if you got Moderna, if you got J&J, could you get a Pfizer booster? Or would that be a problem? No scientific agency has ruled on that. All, uh, I think, muddled messaging, to put it diplomatically. And it's a setback for Biden because he said that as of this past week, anybody over 18 could get it. Well, you know, in the fine print, he said, yes, the subject would be approval of. Love. So he can argue that he's following the science. But you've got so many experts disagreeing. I just think a lot of people are scratching their heads. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's move on to number three. Axios, which boils things down as part of its mandate, uh, just comes out and says uh, on this, you know, Democratic gridlock over the $1 trillion infrastructure bill, the $3.5 trillion, you know, kitchen sink bill, President Biden bid off too much too fast in trying to ram through what would be the largest social expansion in American history, top Democrats privately say. So at the time that Biden did this, he like, remember all those stories? He was going to be FDR. He was going to be LBJ. Uh, the Democrats saw a once-in-a-lifetime opening. In retrospect, some top advisors say, this should have been done in smaller chunks. And I agree with that because it's just you can't push spending of this magnitude through the system, the congressional system, that is, not when you've got a 50-50 Senate. LBJ could do it because he had big majorities in both houses after his... 1964 landslide. Joe Biden doesn't have that luxury. Uh, now, uh, the Axios piece or related piece also goes on to quote Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report as saying sudden doubts about President Biden's competence on Afghanistan, immigration, COVID are driving double digit drops in his approval in key House swing districts. Uh, These early mistakes go very directly to the very rationale of his presidency, that it would be low drama and high competence. Uh, Biden, according to Amy Walters, looks more like a helpless bystander than an experienced Capitol Hill dealmaker watching from the sidelines as his party struggles with internal divisions. And Amy Walters is one of the most fair and nonpartisan political analysts that you will ever find. So she's pretty duff on Biden here. And Axios makes the point, look, we all know at this point the number is going to get knocked down. It's not going to be $3.5 trillion. And as I said on yesterday's podcast, let's say it's only $2 trillion. Do you realize how much money that is? Because remember, that's two trillion first, plus the $1 trillion bipartisan bill, and the $2 we, will be the Democrat-only bill. That in itself is a massive, historic amount of spending. What they did, they reached too far. They wanted everything that every Democrat had ever wanted on any subject. Pre-K, community college, home health care, all that stuff. It's all noble. But then you get trapped in the question of how do you pay for it? Can you get the moderates to go along? Uh, It's a mess. And I don't know that it's a mess that's going to be resolved anytime soon. And one more thing on this. Jonah Goldberg of the Dispatch. I'm a student of language. I'm a writer by trade talks about when Biden's, when the media discuss Biden's problems, so often the passive voice is used. Biden had a bad week or was dealt setbacks or got bad news. He cites an AP report. Uh, over the past several months, Biden has found himself at odds with allies on a number of high-profile issues. Uh, on the um, FDA going against his plan for universal booster shots, quote, but after campaigning for the White House on a pledge to follow the science, Biden found himself uncharacteristically ahead of it with that lofty pronouncement. Um, And here's what Jonah says. Biden didn't, quote, find himself ahead of the science. He rejected or disregarded the science. You can disagree, but it wasn't a passive thing. If Trump or any Republican president had done something similar, says Jonah, the story wouldn't be about Trump finding himself at odds with science. It would be that he defied the science. Oh, let's not forget when Biden chucked his eviction ban moratorium to the Supreme Court, and I talked a lot about that because he knew, he had said it was not constitutional, it was going to get struck down. Fully aware, says Jonah, it was unconstitutional. The response from the administration, Dems and Congress, and much of the press was, the court dealt him a blow. No, he chose to have that blow dealt to him so he could then blame the court for doing its job. I I just think language is important and so often... We use, too many journals. use the passive tense when talking about Joe Biden. By the way, the situation at the border hasn't gotten any better, but the administration has now decided, because the optics are so terrible, that Border Patrol agents will not be riding uh, on horses as they try to push or control Haitian migrants. Uh, the, The images from that, I think, are as bad as anything I've seen. You got these feds, Mounted on horses and these black refugees, that's what they are from Haiti. Um, it's it's just awful. Absolutely awful. All right, number four. There's a new documentary coming out on Disney Plus in a matter of days. It's called Fauci, and it's about Anthony Fauci. And I just watched the trailer and it is unbelievably positive. It paints him as, you know, a superhero. Uh, it's got interviews, his daughter, uh, New York Times even says, you know, he's, uh, he's interviewed wearing sunglasses beside his backyard pool, saying he faced a firestorm of the crazy far right, accusing him of trying to be a movie star. Well, now he is kind of a movie star. Uh, in this documentary, uh, Fauci talks about the extreme far right QAnon jerks or threatened him and his family, and that's regrettable. Um, He says he doesn't want to, he tells the film crew, you can't interfere with what I'm doing. This is not going to be a take one, take two, take three on a movie set. But he likes it as an honest, down-to-earth documentary. So what the Times says is, um, this is overwhelmingly admiring cameos by Fauci fans, including George W. Bush, including Bono who worked with him uh, to combat the AIDS epidemic around the world. There's one critic in there who writes for the New York Times, talks about his flip-flop on masks. But by and large, this is um, a very complimentary— and look, all the people who think— that Anthony Fauci. And, you know, ever since he was working for Donald Trump and Trump would criticize him and even constantly made fun of the fact that he couldn't, didn't throw out a very good first pitch at a Washington Nationals game, uh, people on the right have seen Fauci as inconsistent, as wrong, as, you know, more concerned with his public image and so forth. Um, how can we expect Dr. Fauci to know the basic facts about the pandemic, says National Review? That he's been talking about on television nonstop for 18 months. Look, I just say this. The guy's 80 years old. He's been doing this since the Reagan administration. He's absolutely fair game for criticism. He has made some mistakes, uh, but he cares about this stuff. Now, is it a mistake for him to go on TV so much? Rarely comes on Fox, I should ask, because I know, because I've asked several times. Um, does a lot of friendly interviews. He's cooperated with this documentary. He cooperated with a very uh, positive feature in the New York Times. Look, that's what happens when you're a public figure. Uh, As I say, fair game for criticism, but I don't think he should be portrayed as the devil. Finally, number five, about going back to the office post-COVID. And this is a piece in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson. And he starts out by saying, look, I'm pro-office. I miss a good eavesdropping, the promise of midday gossip, the quick random question that blooms into a half-hour conversation the magical combustion of creativity forged by these connections. He says, these aren't the things I'm paid to do when I'm in the office. It's not what I'm evaluated for doing. Instead, they're what I think of as soft work. And I think that's a really interesting phrase. Uh, Thompson says, in the past year and a half, if it's taught us anything, it's that white-collar workers can do hard work from home just about as well as they can do it in the office, maybe even better precisely because their colleagues aren't interrupting them. And I would just throw in, also because they're not spending an hour, an hour and a half in a day commuting back and forth, they have more time to do their work. Uh, But I also felt, you know, maybe I feel it more in the TV business, which is a very collaborative business or coming out of newspaper newsrooms, um, that there is a lot of cross-pollination. There is a lot of synergy because you talk to people, Um, who have different beats and different interests. And they say, hey, did you see this? and Did you see this? And I think it really helps. Does it help as much as in an insurance company or a defense contractor? I don't know. But let me get back to the piece. Soft work is getting coffee with a coworker. It's catching up about the NFL on Monday morning. If networking, schmoozing, gossiping, and mildly annoying people on your floor with, hey, does this idea suck? Our species of behavior, soft work is the genus uh, that contains them. There are, in he quotes, some academic study out of Berkeley that talks about in-group connections, those we have with a formal team under a manager. And then there are the out-group connections in form of friendships that you have with people throughout the company who aren't necessarily part of your team. And it's these out-group connections that really suffer when everybody's in their own silos, working at home, on Zoom, staring into a uh, screen. So finally, this Atlantic piece says that if today's corporate conventional wisdom were true, the pandemic would have created a hellscape for productivity, it's true. And look, a lot of companies are recognizing this by reducing their amount of office space, space, which is gonna have an impact on the economy, which is gonna have an impact on downtowns in every city. We're already seeing that in midtown Manhattan and in other places as well. I think Washington's a little less effective because government is such a big driver here, but look, there's a big private sector here too and a big tech sector as well. Uh, but instead, corporate earnings are rising, wages are rising, official measures of productivity are rising in practically every state. So that's true, like if not working in the office, and obviously this doesn't apply to grocery workers, healthcare workers, hospital workers, teachers, you know, it's a certain slice of the economy. But you would think if it's so bad to work from home that productivity would have nosedived. And that didn't happen. In fact, it went up. So Derek Thompson concludes by saying the debate about offices isn't always really a debate about offices. In many cases, it's a tug of war over tradition, where the pro-office crowd essentially stumps for the status quo and disguises its aversion to change by wrapping it in the normative language of good office versus troublesome work-from-home policies. Well, I just think this is a fascinating subject, uh, in part because I've started to go back to the office now a couple days a week, uh, pluses and minuses. Now, not everybody is there, so some of that synergy is missing, but you do get to talk to people who you wouldn't ordinarily talk to, or maybe they're people you do talk to, but you don't have to schedule it. you You see them in the hall, hey, what's going on? And that, I think, can be very positive whether it shows up in productivity st- studies or not. I think this is a transition now given the stage of the pandemic we're at with everybody and lots of people going to go through. I wish right now this was a radio show so that I could just say let's open the phone lines and I'd love to have people call in and talk about their own experiences. Uh, but I'll continue to stay on this because I think culturally not to mention economically and, and in terms of the economy this is one of the most interesting things that we all who would have ever imagined that in America We would have spent a year and a half. Many of us would have spent a year and a half at home or many of our kids learning at home from Zoom. I'm so glad that part is over. They need to be in school. Um, And with that, I want to wish everybody a great weekend. I hope you'll, the weather, fall weather is turning nice, at least in this part of the woods. I hope you'll catch Media Buzz Sunday morning. Hope you'll subscribe on Apple iTunes or anywhere else. We'll see you on Monday with more BuzzBear.